Hi everyone and welcome to For Fat's Sake, the ferrets podcast about misinformation, fact checking and the conspiracies you find on the weirdest corners of the internet. I'm your host, Ali Bryan, and with me is the Prince of Podcasting, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing very well, Ali. I like that you, on our second cut of this intro, you managed to include a nice moniker for me, so that's much appreciated. You're very welcome. That's something that'll be continuing uh, throughout the next weeks, if I remember. So it's been a big week, another big week in Scottish politics. They keep coming. Hamza Youssef revealing his policy priorities at the start of this week, slightly overshadowed in some people's eyes by the former treasurer of the SNP being arrested. We'll be talking later in the podcast about a little bit of misinformation around the situation surrounding Peter Murrell's arrest, um, another arrest in the SNP's uh, higher echelons. But what else have we got coming up on this week's pod, Paul? We're going to be talking to Ernie Piper, a freelance disinformation expert about George Soros, an individual I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of and the many sort of slightly baffling conspiracy theories that abound Mm. about him. And we're also in Paul's Curiosity Corner discussing an emergency alert which will be appearing on every UK listener's phones this weekend. Awesome. And in a new technological shift for the podcast, we're getting onto a brand new service that some people have been talking about called YouTube. Um, We're going to be putting an extended cut of uh, the interview with Ernie on YouTube. And going forward, uh, we should be doing that every episode. So feels good to be in 2006. It does feel good, doesn't it? Yeah. For our podcast listeners, here's our interview with Ernie Piper. My name's Ernie Piper. I'm an American journalist living in London. My main area of interest is conspiracy theories, mis- and disinformation, digital culture, kind of just studying how stories and communities interact on the internet. The reason we're talking to you today is because of the conspiracy surrounding George Soros. Um, this is a name that people, listeners may have heard Um, If they have listened to any of our podcasts in the past or have any interest in uh, disinformation narratives that go around the internet, just give a bit of quick background on who George Soros is and why is his name so prominent? George Soros is a, uh, he's Hungarian. He was born in the 1930s and lived through Nazi occupation in Hungary. And then his family fled to the States to get away from that. Um, And then he became a wildly successful banker and financier and um, manager of a hedge fund. Uh, Really famously uh, for the UK, he was, uh, quote unquote, the man who broke the Bank of England. He shorted the British pound in the 90s and made a huge amount of money off of that, along with a bunch of other financial funds who saw that happening. Yeah, so obviously, I think he's particularly well known for being a philanthropist, and as you say, he's yes. made a lot of money um, yeah. in the financial markets. Uh, probably most famous for founding the Open Societies Foundation. So can you explain a wee bit about what that is and the kind of politics that Soros promotes? He did get a start as a financier, and then he pledged a lot of his wealth to this foundation that he uh, created, the Open Society Foundation. Um, the name of it comes from... Uh, book by Karl Popper, the philosopher of science called The Open Society and Its Enemies. The basic argument in that book is that 
um, open societies uh, tolerate lots of different kinds of ideologies, you know, in, in Karl Popper's case, he's specifically talking about like communism, fascism, um, uh, different kinds of, you know, both left and right wing ideologies that mm. all, uh, you know, combine in, in an open society that tolerates all of these different ideas. Um, and so Soros was really influenced by that. And he was really influenced by, you know, just his childhood of growing up in an authoritarian fascist country. And so he, in the seventies, he founded the Open Society Foundation to, you know, give away a lot of his wealth and invest in a lot of different kinds of civil society organizations that promote any sort of open societies. He has become quite a sort of bogeyman for the right wing in the US and across the world, but also just kind of conspiracy theorists in general. Why do you think his name and his foundation has become such a repeated name within these conspiracies and within these narratives that are being created? Well, there's a couple of different reasons for that, I think. Um, there's, so I think at large, it's like, you know, if you have like a, any sort of like financier or philanthropist or who's yeah. do donating to their own ideological causes, I think it's a pretty like normal and fair thing to say like, we can criticize that person for how they choose to invest their money. So like, I yeah. do want to say like upfront, there is like a fair and an unfair way of doing this. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, first of all, you know, because of the things that he chooses to invest in, a lot of things are promoting liberal democracies, promoting open dialogue and specifically promoting like equity initiatives that I can understand why some people on the right wing or, or even on the um, more left version have uh, yeah. left side of things have, completely uh, legitimate criticisms of that. But then also those criticisms uh, often delve into anti-Semitic stereotypes because he is a wealthy Jewish banker promoting yeah. international causes. And we all know what happened the last time that somebody made that the face of their propaganda efforts. So there's that as well. Um, but so some of the reasons that people have started criticizing him is because he is uh, an extremely um, influential donor and a lot of his activities in uh, Eastern Europe and the developing world have attracted a lot of uh, criticism from authoritarian governments. Um, uh, I think the earliest criticism of him was from a Malaysian prime minister in the 90s who yeah. said that he'd intentionally shorted the ringgit uh, and caused the economy to collapse. The Malaysian prime minister did apologize for that years mm. later to George Soros. But like that's that's kind of where we get the start of those tropes. And then you know those criticisms can range from more or less legitimate to more or less conspiratorial as we go. You sort of mentioned earlier that um, Soros was born in the 1930s, so mm. he's now a very old man. I think he's in his, his 90s, um, if my maths yeah. is correct. Um, yeah. So, and he's also been a prominent figure, as you said, for a number of years now, you know, dating back to uh, the financial crisis in the UK in the 1990s. So do conspiracy theories about him predate the internet or has that sort of um, supercharged them? About George Soros specifically, I could not find conspiracy theories necessarily about him that stretched back so far. I think that there was perhaps some negative coverage of him in his home country of Hungary uh, years ago. 
Um, like I said earlier, there was that sort of like more conspiratorial claim in the 90s from the Malaysian government. But the things that stretch back a lot further are the anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes that uh, his activities have been used to invoke. Um, and specifically, those anti-Semitic stereotypes are um, the uh, Jewish person as the perpetual outsider, the wanderer, the, uh, the, the person who has all of the money and is pulling the strings. A lot of these anti-Semitic tropes um, are centuries old from yeah. Europe. Um, you know, the idea of Jews as money lenders or as mm -hmm. trying to corrupt Christian society. Uh, and then some of them are only about 100 years old. For instance, uh, Jewish people uh, as a cabal of financiers trying to control the world for a quote unquote globalist agenda that dates back to the protocols of the elders of Zion, which uh, if your listeners are not familiar is um, a document, a piece of propaganda that was produced under the Russian czar that purported to be the minutes of a meeting of a cabal of Jewish elders about how they were going to take over the world. And that became the basis of Nazi propaganda and was widely distributed in the US as well. That sort of like conspiratorial framework is the thing that a lot that harkens back to a lot of the anti-Semitic criticism of George Soros dips into it. I, I do want to emphasize that it's not just uh, anti-Semitic conspiracies or conspiracy theories about George Soros that are proliferated on the internet. They are pro proliferated by state governments and state media in a variety of different countries, including Hungary, uh, Pakistan, Turkey, uh, and especially in the US, not state media, but definitely like huge media channels on TV in the, in the US and the UK. Part of the reason we're talking about Soros now, although as you say, <laughs> the conspiracy theories about him have been going for a long time is that he's been recently drawn into the prosecution of Donald Trump. Um, Trump and others, other um, Republicans have certainly mentioned that the um, prosecutor Alvin Bragg was funded by Soros or, I mean, uh, Republican Matt Gates said that there was, there was a, quote, Sorosification of the justice system. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, a little bit about how that came about and also the links between these things. Yeah, so the idea of Soros as a puppet master uh, in the American right uh, date back a couple of years. It didn't used to be a really mainstream thing that was more mm -hmm. common in like very conspiratorial circles. Um, and now it's it's been mainstreamed. A huge yeah. part of that was the... A uh, U.S. Fox News commentator, who, uh, Tucker Carlson, who has the most watched cable news show in the United States. You know, it's tens of millions of people. Yeah. Um, he made a documentary about Hungary where he traveled to Hungary and spoke to uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who is a deeply illiberal authoritarian politician who's like shut down opposition media, um, gone after opposition politicians. Um, legally and like uh, rolled out a whole host of anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ uh, policies. Tucker Carlson made this documentary about Hungary and Orban portraying it as this outpost of civilization, uh, outpost of Western civilization in Eastern Europe specifically, where he really softballed the interview with Orban. Um, and Viktor Orban speaks specifically about how he made uh, George Soros the face 
of uh, the opposition. He said, this is what right. we're fighting. We're fighting foreign influence. We're fighting globalist influence. We're fighting, and he doesn't often say Jewish influence, but right, the, yeah. the dog whistles are extremely clear. So Tucker Carlson makes this documentary that gets circulated throughout the American right and through American TV pundits. And now Soros is a bit of a talking point. And in the wake of uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, in mm-hmm. uh, the U.S., especially in 2020, you know, there's been a bit of move in uh, the American justice system to try and get uh, prosecutors who are working within the system to try and create uh, safer, more just places that aren't so punitive. Um, yeah. Now, George Soros directly supports that, and he has funded uh, a number of organizations that support these a lot of prosecutors who are like run for public office. One of the groups that he's donated uh, about a million dollars to is Color for Change in New York. They endorsed Alvin Bragg, uh, his candidacy, and Alvin Bragg got in. So it is true that Soros, uh, his Open Society Foundation has given money to organizations that support this kind of thing and support people like Alvin Bragg. Um, It is not true that Soros or anyone at the Open Society Foundation had any say into who those people are. You mentioned George Soros conspiracies being a sort of anti-Semitic dog whistle. I'm interested to know, first of all, like if you could just explain that and how some people might be talking about George Soros and not knowing necessarily the history of it and the more anti-Semitic sides of the conspiracy theory, and also how it is interacting with other conspiracy theories that we've kind of seen during the rounds. In terms of the UK conspiracy space, especially, um, I think the where the George Soros uh, it, stuff got its start, especially with the anti-Semitic stuff, that came about especially with the Brexit campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, the Daily Telegraph during the Brexit campaign had a big front page splashed exclu- exclusive saying, uh, we've just received word that George Soros is funding the anti-Brexit campaign. Mm-hmm. And he's, he'd spent something like 400,000 pounds on uh, groups that, are trying to campaign against Brexit. And uh, the politicians that used that story, the journalists that uh, printed it and talked about it, like a lot of them got criticism for being anti-Semitic because that was, um, they were employing these same tropes of Soros, like controlling or being the puppet master um, of trying to promote a globalist uh, agenda. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of where that got its start, especially in Britain's and, and the discourse of that followed the groundwork into the COVID conspiracy space and the 15-minute city stuff. And I think, you know, to people who say that, like, oh, is this anti-Semitic? Is this not anti-Semitic? Like, do we know that's anti-Semitic or not? Um, I had a quote that I wanted to read from the American author, uh, Emily Tampkin, who's written a book about um, the George Soros myth and, like, what he is and how he has had this influence Mm -hmm. on politics, Mm -hmm. but also, like, what it's not. Um, And this is her writing in The New Statesman. Uh, The bot politician, the corrupting influence of the outsider, these are anti-Semitic stereotypes. Uh, What's really being said when these uh, are happening? George Soros isn't running for office. What is the intent of saying that a person, yes, a Jewish person, not on the ballot, is controlling the candidate, and that they wish to degrade citizens and uplift violent criminals? And why, when the trope has repeatedly been identified as anti-Semitic and is putting Jewish people and others at risk, when mass shooters cite conspiracies about Jews controlling other populations in their manifestos, why would anyone persist in using it? 
So, Ali, I'm sure, uh, like much of our audience, you've been following the recent travails of the SNP very closely. Um, a couple of weeks ago, obviously, we heard the dramatic news that Nicola Sturgeon's husband and the former chief exec of the SNP, Peter Murrell, had been arrested in connection with the ongoing investigation into the party's finances. And there have been further developments this week, as I'm sure you're all aware. Police searched Surgeon and Murrow's Glasgow home and were pictured holding spades in their back garden. And this prompted some outlets to report that police were digging in Nicola Sturgeon's garden, presumably for some kind of evidence that had been buried there. But as you uncovered in a fact check for our site, that wasn't quite right, was it? So what were the police doing in Sturgeon's garden, Ali? So, yeah, this was like the big, obviously the big story in like UK media uh, when it happened a couple of weeks ago. And journalists at the scene and everybody on social media seemed to be tweeting out tidbits of information they'd gleaned from what, what they could see over the fence or was being told to them by locals. And it was just a massive stramash of information. Yeah. The police basically, as you say, um, went to the Murrell and the Murrell and Sturgeon's house and uh, arrested Peter Murrell and then searched the property. So there was a police tent outside the front of the property and um, police, you know, police tape up and loads and loads of officers who were going through the property uh, to start look, looking for evidence as part of this ongoing probe, which you mentioned. So basically, the crux of the claim that um, police were digging in the back garden of their property came from one tweet, as far as we could tell, uh, from a journalist who tweeted accurately tweeted that police had been quote seen with a spade and garden equipment in the rear garden of their house uh this was picked up like by on social media obviously it's a bit of a feeding frenzy as you can imagine in such a high profile political um development and this was picked up by loads of pundits on social media and such as random social media users who made a kind of i suppose understandable but slightly sloppy leap of logic uh, yeah. that the spades were being used by the police to dig up the garden, presumably, as you say, to find some sort of evidence buried in the back garden, which, I mean, would have been a massively kind of interesting <laughs> update to the story. <laughs> it's um, a good story, yeah. But uh, as we confirmed, the spades were actually seen in the officer's hands as they removed them from a shed behind the house, which they were looking through as part of the search. They weren't using them in the course of their uh, investigation. Okay, so you mentioned the UK media feeding frenzy there. So mm. how many outlets picked up this claim and where did they appear? Yeah, so I say numerous kind of political commentators on social media picked up the claim. Um, the Daily Mail included it in a headline. The News Agents podcast, which you might know, which is a daily politics show hosted by John Sopo and Emily Maitlis. A rival. A rival podcast, yeah. Um, they titled their daily episode with why are the police digging in Nicholas Sturgeon's garden? Um, but these headlines and things were quietly dropped after it became clear that police had not actually been digging in the garden. So yeah, last week we were discussing the Pope and the rather lovely AI image of him in a puffer jacket. But this is just a more old-fashioned case of people seeing things on social media and jumping to incorrect conclusions. So how do you think that news organisations can make sure they're covering things like this more accurately in future? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the what we covered last week about the Pope is like really, really high-end, sort of potentially really dangerous um, technology being used to create something that's sort of quite funny and on inconsequential uh, whereas yeah. this is as you say classic um 
a mistake on being made on social media and people not doing the, the right sourcing and stuff um, that actually could have quite serious consequences in terms of the way that people think this probe are unfolding. It's a real problem, I think, with the nature of an incident like this. It's a kind of it's a rolling news situation. It's a, a massively high profile issue. What we would say is, uh, as fact checkers is like if you're a journalist or if you're um, somebody on social media or anybody who sees a tweet like that is read the tweet clearly. Like the tweet that yeah. started all this stuff off is not inaccurate at all. It's and it's it's mm-hmm. perfectly legitimate thing to report that they were they were they were holding garden spades. I mean, obviously there there's potential there that people can make that leap of logic we talked talked about and assume that means that they're using them as part of the investigation. But it doesn't actually say that. As I said before, it's a bit of a feeding frenzy and a bit of kind of media scrum that goes on in these situations. And it seems like some journalists were reporting what they'd seen other journalists say rather than anybody actually going to the source and checking. So other journalists who are at the scene, including uh, Peter Smith, who was there for ITV, was saying, the police are saying to us that nobody's actually been digging in the garden, but that didn't get the coverage that maybe the other the original tweet got because they, all the things that span off that. And if you were searching on social media, there was loads and loads of tweets about it. And the problem is that in these situations, that kind of gets amplified when media don't do their jobs of actually checking. Yeah. Because it was a fairly straightforward thing to check. It could have been confirmed by journalists at the scene or by contacting Police Scotland. Um, and that's basically what we did. If the police had been digging up Nicholas Sturgeon's back garden, that's an incredibly exciting update. And I think some commentators and news outlets perhaps got a bit caught up in that. Yeah, it's the, the age-old thing where people sort of believe the interesting story that they want to believe rather than the, the rather... Less interesting truth. Welcome back to Paul's Curiosity Corner. So, Ali, this week there's been a lot of claims flying around about the government taking over people's phones at some point this weekend. So what is going on? Yeah, so on Sunday afternoon, people with 4G and 5G connected mobile phones uh, will get an alert, which will be accompanied by sound and vibration, which you'll have to tap OK on or swipe away from. Um, Apparently, the message will read, this is a test of emergency alerts, a new UK government service that will warn you if there's a life-threatening emergency nearby. It does sound pretty alarming. Um, Mm. So what sort of things are they planning to use the service for? Uh, so the government says the system's meant for use in potentially life-threatening situations, so like flooding, wildfires, things like that. Um, there are also schemes like these already in place, uh, particularly for wildfires in uh, the US, in Canada, Japan, and the Netherlands have got them. Uh, people might remember a few years ago, there was a similar system that went a bit wrong in Hawaii, where mm-hmm. people were accidentally sent an alert to their phones saying that there was a ballistic missile threat on its way to the island. Uh, but I think this weekend's test should be a little bit more boring. Okay, we can only hope. But there has been quite a lot of misinformation about the test. So what kind of things have you been hearing? Well, a lot of the claims uh, link are linked to 5G. And we, we've fact-checked things about the 5G network, yeah. and particularly its connection to COVID-19, of which there is none, um, <laughs> in the past, particularly during the pandemic. Um, and there's been claims made on social media that the message will somehow activate pathogens in the COVID-19 vaccine through 5G networks. Um, this is obviously not possible. Uh, you can't activate a vaccine through a mobile phone network. Uh, the, many of the claims about 5G's um, impacts on people have been completely debunked. 
and uh, the connection to COVID-19 has been completely debunked. Also, the COVID-19 vaccine doesn't contain pathogens. So there's no need to worry on that account. Um, and we've seen, yeah, various claims, similar claims and suggestions of people wrap their phones in um, aluminum foil and things like that. These are things that are completely unnecessary and, um, yeah, won't help at all. Okay, so other than the slightly more sci-fi reasons to be worried about this mm. uh, that some people are cooking up in their imagination, are there more founded concerns about the test? Yeah, so um, one thing that people have been concerned about is because obviously this test is not, you know, not it's not a thing you can you sign up for uh, voluntarily. That uh, mm-hmm. domestic violence campaigners have raised concerns the test could put people who are facing abuse in danger because many of them might have a secret mobile phone um, for use in emergencies, and that if that, for example, a, a sound or vibration right. that could like alert their um, abuser to the fact they had a secret phone that was hidden away. Um, but according to the UK government, you can opt out of the test by switching off your phone. Um, and you can also turn off emergency alerts in your settings. So if everyone goes on their phones and um, goes to set, go to settings and notifications, um, depending on an iPhone or Android, it'll be slightly put in a different place. But you can tap a notification that turns off emergency alerts um, if you feel like that's necessary. Um, there are also concerns that scammers might send similar looking messages to the alert. Yeah. Um, but it's worth remembering that if the emergency alerts can say the specific um quote that i mentioned earlier and will only ask you to you only say okay or you have to swipe away it won't ask you to go on another website or enter your details or send them a text back or anything that a scammer might put in place that would make you go on another website that then could scam you out of money or your details or you know um in some way be able to get uh, control of your device Okay, and obviously this will be a lot about messaging from the UK government. So do you think the word has been spread sufficiently? That's a good question. I think it's interesting that we've seen quite a lot of um, the information being spread on socials about this, um, correct information being spread, but not through official sources. So quite a lot of the the things that have been spread on Instagram, for example, have been coming from uh, Citizens Advice, um, which is obviously a very reputable um, source of information. But perhaps the information from the UK government hasn't been quite clear enough or widespread enough because i know i know a lot of people personally have come to me asking me if whether or not this thing is actually happening um so it seems like the messaging maybe needs a little bit more That's all, folks, from this episode of For Fact's Sake. Thanks so much to Ernie Piper for his insights on George Soros. And, Paul, if people want to get in touch with us, uh, if they've got anything they want to say to us about anything, where can they go to do that? We're on all the usual social media channels. So Twitter, we're at Ferret Scott. We've obviously got our Facebook page, The Ferret. Uh, There's also the Facebook page for The Ferret Underground, our newsletter. And there is the middle-aged as we're now describing it community forum community.theferret.scot where all of our journalists and fact checkers are always available to answer your questions and interact with our listeners and readers excellent and if you want to get in contact with us directly via email factcheck at theferret.scot is the place to go remember keep giving us five stars wherever you get your podcast it really helps us and we will see you next time bye bye